0: The Old Covenant reading for this evening is taken from the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 20, beginning at verse 31. We'll be reading through verse 43 this evening, which is also the end of the chapter. In fact, I'm going to begin reading at verse 30b, which is how my version of the English Standard Version divides the text. The word of the Lord. Ben-Hadad also fled... And entered an inner chamber in the city, and his servant said to him, Behold now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Let us put sackcloth around our waists, and ropes on our heads, and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. So they tied sackcloth around their waists, and put ropes on their heads, And went to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben-Hadad says, Please, let me live. And he said, Does he still live? He is my brother. Now the men were watching for a sign, and they quickly took it up from him and said, Yes, your brother Ben-Hadad. Then he said, Go and bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came out to him, and he caused him to come up into the chariot. And Ben-Hadad said to him, The cities that my father took from your father I will restore, and you may establish bazaars for yourself in Damascus, as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, I will let you go on these terms. So he made a covenant with him and let him go. And a certain man of the sons of the prophet said to his fellow at the command of the Lord, strike me please. But the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you have gone from me, a lion shall strike you down. And as soon as he departed from him, a lion met him and struck him down. Then he found another man and said, "'Strike me, please.' And the man struck him, struck him, and wounded him. So the prophet departed and waited for the king by the way, disguising himself with a bandage over his eyes. And as the king passed, he cried to the king and said, "'Your servant went out into the midst of the battle, and behold, the soldier turned and brought a man to me and said,' guard this man, if by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. And as the servant was busy here and there, he was gone. The king of Israel said to him, so shall your judgment be, you yourself have decided it. Then he hurried to take the bandage away from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. And he said to him, Thus says the Lord, because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I have devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life, and your people for his people. And the king of Israel went to his house, vexed in someone, and came. To Samaria. Here endeth the old covenant reading. Please turn with me to the new covenant reading, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 13 this evening. I want to ask you to pay particular attention to what the Apostle Paul expects us to learn from Old Testament history as it is recorded in God's Word. The Word of our God. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and rose up to play." We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation is overtaking you, but is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Here endeth the New Covenant reading. Please turn with me once again back to 1 Kings chapter 20, beginning at verse 30b, as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our evening sermon. Those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Uh, This slight modification of a famous quotation um, is actually a very minor modification. George Santana wrote, Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And the modified version is slightly more punchy, but they're actually saying the same thing. Something that's quite important for us who are gathered here this evening is Christians, because Christianity is fundamentally a historical religion. Christianity is tied up with what the living God has done in history, from the call of Abraham, the exodus, and most importantly, the actual historical events of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It really is true that your eternity hangs on the fact that that first Easter morning, Jesus had risen from the dead, and the tomb was empty that he rose from the dead, triumphant and glorified, to live and reign forever. History matters a great deal for the people of God. Now in this, Christianity is fundamentally different from almost all other religions, save Judaism. In Buddhism, it actually really doesn't matter if the original Buddha ever lived, because it's really a philosophy. It doesn't matter whether or not this particular man did anything. In Confucianism, it does not matter whether or not Confucius lived. But beloved, everything hangs on the fact that the Son of God, the incarnate God, actually lived and walked in your shoes. But in the fullness of time, he came, fulfilled the law with perfect righteousness, and gave his life as a substitute for yours. In fact, The Bible as a whole is primarily a history book. It is not a handbook or a a book full of rules. As you try to discover how you are to live joyfully and to the glory of God, you don't look at the index in the back and simply look up what to do in each situation. Rather, God has given us an account of his own interactions with human beings over the centuries so that we'll learn what our God is like in his compassion, in his power, in the way he acts on behalf of his people, and so that we'll learn both from the faithfulness and also from the sins of those who have gone before us. It is precisely in understanding not simply the events, but God's interpretation of those events that we come to understand a great deal of God's will for our lives. And therefore, history matters a great deal for us as Christians. As the Apostle Paul tells the Corinthians, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. This means that we're responsible for this wonderful, gracious gift of God's word to actually learn from it and therefore change the way we live in light of the Lord's own interpretation of history And of those who have gone before us. We're going to look at tonight's passage under three main headings. First, who is my brother? Second, obedience to the Lord means obedience to his word. And third, measure for measure. Let me give you those three main headings once again. First, who is my brother? Second, Obedience to the Lord means obedience to his word. And third, measure for measure. Uh, We begin this evening with uh, King Ben-Hadad of Syria, the pompous and frequently drunk king, the the power mad king of Syria, who had twice come with a massive army against Israel, only to discover that it did not matter how small Israel's army was, what mattered was how great Israel's god was and though he came with an army that he thought would overwhelm them he ended up being utterly humbled the lord has repeatedly and graciously delivered Syria's vast army into Ahab's hands and ben finds himself hiding in an inner chamber in the city of Aphek a city that had big walls but walls that like Jericho have fallen down by god's power in fact, the falling of the walls has killed an additional 27,000 of the Syrian troops. And Ben-Hadad is just quivering, hiding for his life. Verse 31. And Ben-Hadad's servant said to him, Behold now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Let us put sackcloth around our waist and ropes on our heads, and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. Oh, have the mighty have fallen. Uh, it turns out that Ahab had been right about one thing. He had warned ben before the first battle. He who puts his armor on ought not to boast like he who takes it off. Back before the battle, the first battle, an arrogant Ben Hadad had promised that he was going to utterly devastate Samaria so that his troops wouldn't even be able to gather up a handful of dust for each of them. But that is not how things have turned out. Now, instead of putting on their armor, the servants of the king are calling him and the remaining Syrians to put on sackcloth, to humble themselves, and to plead for mercy. They are not hoping for a mutually beneficial deal. They are simply taking their best shot at saving the life of their king. How the mighty have fallen indeed. Verse 32. So they tied sackcloth around their waists and put ropes on their heads and went to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben-Hadad says, Please let me live. And he said, does he still live? He is my brother. Uh, this is the first of three exchanges. Critically, the roles have entirely reversed. You'll recall if you were with us when we looked at the earlier portions of this passage that Ahab of Israel had utterly humbled himself before Ben-Hadad. He had given him his, offered to give him his silver and his gold. He had offered to become his vassal king, who would send him tribute year after year and send Jewish forces out to fight in Ben-Hadad's army. He humbly called himself Ben-Hadad's servant. But now it is Ben-Hadad who approaches Ahab and says, I am your servant. His appeal is simple and direct. Please let me live. Now, Ahab's uh, response might catch us by surprise. I mean, you might think the options here are, I'm going to have him grovel and get as much out of him as I can, or this guy tried to put Israel to the sword twice. There's no way I'm going to let him live. But what Ahab asks is, "Does he still live?" And then he asserts, he is my brother. I mean, it sounds very much like Ahab is delighted that Ben-Hadab wasn't killed in battle. And he is embracing him not simply with diplomatic niceties, but with warmth. My question for you is this. Why does Ahab choose to treat his former enemy like this? Well, first of all, it was common for kings, at least kings that were on good relations with each other, Particularly kings that were in covenant relationship a treaty with each other to call each other brother Well, we see David and Solomon doing that with some of the kings for example of Tyre So so that language would have been common for king-to-king relationships if they were on friendly terms But of course Ben-Hadad wanted Ahab to suffer and he planned on wiping Israel out So what exactly is going on here? Well, there is a strange reality about class that may impact this. Rulers frequently feel a greater affinity for one another than they do for their own people that they rule. Uh, You can understand that. That, that That's just how life develops. And of course, this is not simply about kings. Um, Since probably none of you are likely to become a monarch someday, although maybe one or two of you might, uh, let me give you a more... Uh, close-to-us sort of example of how people can get identity with what they perceive as their peers rather than the people they're supposed to serve. Uh, Some people, maybe some of you someday, are called to serve Christ's church by becoming professors of the Bible or seminary professors. Here's an interesting thing that happens, and it's a very dangerous reality. Many devoted Christians who heed this call and become seminary professors, end up identifying more with the academy than they do with the church. Now, I want to say this quite plainly. First of all, that's bad if everyone in the academy was a Christian. But it should be obvious if you and your calling are identifying more with another professor who doesn't believe in the inspiration of Scripture, who doesn't believe that Jesus was bodily raised from the dead, than you are with the blue-collar workers sitting in the back pew of the church, the train has really run off the tracks. But, beloved, I can tell you, having gone to a lot of school, that happens a lot. It's very easy to identify with people who sort of have the same functional roles, even over our identity with the people who are part of our church family. Of course, that's not just true of seminary professors. This is true on a socioeconomic basis as well. You know, people who go to the country club together can kind of see themselves as a group and not necessarily the connection across the socioeconomic spans of the church. And there are all sorts of barriers and ways that we can do that. I mean, even shared hobbies and so on. So we need to be really careful about who we're calling brother and sister, not just with our lips, but with our hearts. Where are we finding our identity? As the people of God and to point out the obvious the lowliest saint on earth who seems to have almost nothing in common with us is someone for whom our Savior died and someone that you are going to spend eternity with in glory we ought to act like that right now well one thing is certain the servants of Ben-Hadad were pretty excited about Ahab's response Uh, They had sent along a request from their king, simply pleading for his life. And what they hear is, brother, a sense of excitement that he's alive and embraced. I mean, things are going better for them than they could possibly have hoped. A second thing should be obvious to us. I want to say even if it might not have been obvious to those who were immediately around Ahab at the time, but it should be obvious to us Ahab has learned nothing at all from the grace of God. The living God has sent prophets to Ahab. Ahab didn't go out and win this battle by himself. He knew he had no power to do it. Ahab sent his own messengers, I'm sorry, the Lord sent his own messengers to Ahab and announced he's going to deliver Ben-Hadad and his army into his hands. And then twice God did that very thing. What should Ahab have been thinking? Well, Ahab should have been thinking that it's Almighty God, Yahweh, the Lord of heaven's armies, who's actually in charge here, not me. Uh, You should see some connections here between uh, this passage and Israel going into Canaan for the first time and conquering Jericho. You remember before that battle, the Lord Jesus Christ, at least in my judgment, it's a pre incarnation appearance of our Lord, he appears to Joshua. And Joshua goes out to him and says, who are you? Are you you for us or are you for our enemies? Do you remember what our Lord says? He says, no. I mean, what kind of answer is that? He's out there with a flaming sword. Are you for us or are you for our enemies? And Jesus says, no. But then he says, is the captain and the Lord of hosts I have come. See, Jesus did not come to take sides. He came to take over. Ahab misses this. Almighty God has graciously come to Israel and led them to victory twice. And after the victory, when he has this decisive, incredibly important decision to make about the king that he's conquered, he does not seek God's face. He does not inquire of a prophet what he should do. He does not pray to the Lord. He acts as though he is in charge. Who had given him victory over ben Haddad? Not once, but twice? Who was the true commander-in-chief here? Despite the obvious answers to these questions, Ahab did not seek out the prophet to ask for God's direction at this critical moment. Beloved, let this be a lesson to us it is easy for us to ask the Lord to bless our plans, to bless the decisions that we have already made. But when we're out to make big plans and to make important decisions, it is vital for us to seek the Lord's will before we make the decisions and not merely to seek his blessing afterwards. Look at verse 33 with me. Now the men were watching for a sign, And they quickly took it up from him and said, Yes, your brother Ben-Hadad. Then he said, Go and bring him. Then Ben-Hadad came out to him, and he caused him to come up into his chariot. Now here's a bit of symbolism that we could miss. Bringing him up into his chariot was treating him as an equal. You know, we're the two rulers here, the two kings here. It was a way of publicly elevating him. Now, to be clear, um, Ahab still holds all the cards. Right, If Ben-Hadad doesn't act well, Ahab could still put him to death. But he's honoring him. He's exalting him. He's lifting him up publicly and treating him as a brother. This generous gesture results in Ben-Hadad promising everything that he reasonably can to fully guarantee that he can go home to Damascus in one piece. Verse 34. And Ben-Hadad said to him, The cities that my father took from your father, I will restore, and you may establish bazaars for yourself in Damascus, as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, I will let you go on these terms. So he made a covenant with him, and let him go. So Ben Haddad offers to restore the cities that his father took from Israel. He also offers to allow Ahab to set up trading posts in Damascus. He's instantly promising to elevate Ahab's political status in the region, but also to make him wealthier, both by restoring these cities, but also by improving his trade options. Now, if you remember that Israel has been devastated by three and a half years of famine, and that one of the reasons why Israel was apparently such easy pickings to the Syrians was because their economy had been devastated, you can see just how attractive Ben-Hadad's offer would have been. So without consulting the Lord, Ahab agrees, I will let you go on these terms. And please notice, this is more than a gentleman's agreement. They cut a covenant, right? They cut a treaty. That's what covenants are. They they created a treaty that would be binding, at least in theory, not only on the two of them, but on their descendants. As permanent as anything really is in this world, Ahab was gaining a permanent advantage for Israel. He might have thought this, you know, uh, to use our example, it's getting his face up on Mount Rushmore. Right? Israelites for generations are going to talk about how Ahab, through his clever and wise political maneuvering, had elevated Israel's status in the world and dramatically improved their economy. A number of commentators suggest that Ahab's decision to make a treaty with Ben-Hadad is, in fact, inexplicable. Why would anyone let a dedicated foe go home when that foe had twice determined to wipe him out. Do you feel the the force of the commentators there? I mean, remember, Ben-Hadad is not a guy who's just had a few casual differences with Israel. He had surrounded them, put them under siege, and he said, look, I'm going to wipe you out. My soldiers aren't even going to have a bit of dust left for their hands. We're going to devastate you so much. So the commentators say it's inexplicable that Ahab would let him go. And I wanna suggest that these scholars have their noses in the books, something most of you realize I really enjoy doing myself, but they haven't really thought very much about reality. Um, the reality of the situation is, if Ahab kills ben Syria is still much more mir- militarily powerful than Israel is. He'll have cut off the head of a snake, but another one's gonna arise and very well may be seeking to get revenge for killing Ben-Hadad, particularly if it's one of his sons that comes to the throne, which is likely, wouldn't it be better to cut a deal? You know, when the time is so opportune, a really favorable treaty, that a grateful Ben-Hadad is going to stick to. I mean, doesn't that make good sense? Furthermore, Ahab must have been mindful of the growing might of the Assyrian Empire. A treaty with Damascus might help protect Israel against the Assyrians. If Ahab tries to maintain some sort of hegemony over Damascus, something that on the face of it is really very implausible, but even if he tries it and pulls it off, he's going to be a sitting duck for the Assyrians. But if he unites with Damascus, right, with Syria and Ben-Hadad is very grateful as a, as a loyal partner, then together they might be able to resist the Assyrian onslaught. Wouldn't it be better to turn an old enemy into a grateful friend for their mutual benefit? Here's a very clear way of putting it by an Old Testament scholar named John Goldengay. Ahab is behaving in a civilized and politically astute way, but that means living in the world's way, being in the world, and also being of the world. And that shouldn't surprise us at all. I mean, after all, Ahab is the guy who introduces with his wife Baal worship in Israel. I mean, he's been an idolater and the most wicked king in Israel's history. Yet this is the key thing to grasp in the passage. If Israel were any other pagan nation, Ahab's behavior would make complete sense. Do you get that? I mean, This is not unwise behavior on his part. If Israel was any other nation, Ahab's behavior would make complete sense. But because Israel is covenanted with Yahweh, the Lord their God, the Lord who has delivered them in battle, then Ahab's behavior turns out to be rebellion against the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verses 35 and 36. And a certain man of the sons of the prophet said to his fellow, at the command of the Lord, Strike me, please. But the man refused to strike him. Then he said to him, Because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord... Behold, as soon as you have gone from me, a lion shall strike you down. And as soon as he had departed from him, a lion met him and struck him down. Um, You may wonder, I'm gonna ask it as a question, because I think we might ask this question. uh, Why in the world does the prophet who wants to disguise himself as a wounded soldier, why doesn't he just put a bandage on? Why does he need his fellow prophet To strike him. And you might think it's just about being realistic, but I don't think that's really it. And we should note it isn't the prophet's idea. It is the Lord who gives him this idea. And I think one of the things it does for us is it actually sets the template through which we ought to read the whole passage. The word of the Lord comes through a prophet to one of his companions, a fellow prophet, and that fellow prophet doesn't obey the word of the Lord because it doesn't seem good in his own eyes. And then we see how severe the judgment is. When you take that as your interpretive lens, you can see how it's going to help us understand what God is going to do with Ahab. Here's a vital truth, which somehow seems to keep slipping away from the church. To trust and obey God is to trust and obey God's word. It really is that simple. And to distrust God's word and to disobey God's word is to disobey God himself. Now, regrettably, the 19th and 20th centuries, and now the 21st century, we haven't gotten better, have given us great masses of people who imagine that they can love, Trust and obey God while mocking His word, ignoring His word, and crassly disobeying His word. That is our situation today. But I hope you all grasp immediately that this is utterly impossible. I mean, try to imagine a teenage son going to his parents and saying, Oh, no, I obey you. I just don't do what you say. I only disobey your word, not you. Well, that's ridiculous. But do you know there are many, many people with PhDs from impressive universities who teach college students and seminary students that they can do that very thing with the living God, that they can love God while despising his word. And beloved, that separation is impossible. May tonight's passage be a reminder to us of how serious an error this is The unnamed prophet loses his life simply because he refused to do what the word of God told him to do. By the way, the fact that a lion will will fulfill the prophecy and kill this man validates that the first man really is a prophet and truly was speaking on God's behalf. He is a prophet of the Lord, a messenger of the Lord who is engaged in God's mission. Verses 37 through 40. Then the prophet found another man and said, Strike me, please. And the man struck him, struck him and wounded him. So the prophet departed and waited for the king by the way, disguising himself with a bandage over his eyes. And as the king passed, he cried to the king and said, Your servant went out into the midst of the battle. And behold, the soldier turned And brought a man to me and said, guard this man, if by any means he is missing, your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. And as your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. The king of Israel said to him, so shall your judgment be, you yourself have decided it. You get the story? I suspect that King Ahab was actually walking along very pleased with himself. I mean, life is finally starting to look up. He had a miserable three and a half years of famine and he was overwhelmed in battle with forces he could not possibly conquer. And now at the end of it all, he's getting cities given back to him and economic expansion. Life is good. The last thing King Ahab wants to deal with is some soldier you know, some riffraff from the king's perspective is wounded and beat up. But, but this prophet disguises himself and he insists on getting the king's attention. He tells the king that he had been given responsibility for guarding a very important prisoner, one who was worth at least a talent of silver. Now, a talent of silver is six, at least 62 pounds. It's a lot of silver but that actually can cause us to miss the point. Because for us, that's a lot of money. But most of us actually could pay it if we needed to. In the ancient world in the ancient Near East, almost no soldier in the entire army could come up with a talent of silver. Basically, three years were the wages. And that meant that what the sentence really was, is if he's gone, you die. Your life for his life. Stakes could scarcely be any higher And to make matters worse, the prophet confesses, as I was busy here and there, I looked, and the man had escaped. I mean, the king has all the information he needs. He has a public confession, but the man had understood what the sentence was, your life or his, and he let the man escape. As the unnamed prophet tells the king this parable, uh, I'm sure that you, like me, immediately think back to Nathan and David, because that's precisely what he's doing. He's giving him a parable in his story so that the king will pronounce judgment upon himself. Like David in the famous encounter with Nathan, Ahab pronounces his own sentence. The king of Israel said to him, so shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. And I almost expect this prophet to cry out, Thou art the man. But that's not what he does. What he does is he takes off his disguise. And the king recognizes him right away as one of the prophets. Verse 41. Then the prophet hurried to take the bandage away from his eyes and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. The king has fallen into a trap. As Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, Judge not, lest ye be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured unto you. King Ahab had rashly made huge decisions about the future of his nation without bothering to consult the Lord. Now he rashly announces judgment as Israel's chief human judge, only to discover that he was announcing judgment. Upon himself. Look at verses 42 and 43 with me. And the prophet said to him, Thus says the Lord, because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life, and your people for his people. And the king of Israel went to his house vexed and sullen and came to Samaria. As Dale Ralph Davis points out, off comes the disguise, and the king's heart sinks. The king recognizes the prophet, and he hears his word. Yahweh says this. Please remember, Lord means Yahweh. It's important not just to think of someone who's in charge. The covenant God of Israel who was in battle with Baal, whom Jezebel and Ahab still refused to worship? Yahweh says this Since you have let the man escape who was under my curse of destruction, your life will pay for his, your people for his people. Yahweh here literally labels Ben Hadad the man of destruction. Ahab had spared the man that Yahweh meant to destroy. He had been very busy here and there preening his image as the moderate temperate, you know, kind reasonable voice as the king of Israel, the victor, and he had let Yahweh's prisoner escape. Hence the destruction designed for Ben-Hadad will fall upon Ahab and his people. Uh, That destruction there of Ben-Hadad that is so central in verse 42 is that he was marked out by God for destruction right the man whom I, whom I have devoted for destruction and you ought to think back immediately to Jericho because that's what the Lord does with the Canaanites he devotes the whole city to destruction he devotes the gold and the silver the fine clothing the animals all of it to be wiped out And you'll remember that Achan decided that he was going to take some for himself and he ended up doing so at the cost of his life and the life of his family. We now have a replay, right? Ahab has learned nothing from history. He does the very same thing. We might also want to notice that Ahab's conduct is frighteningly reminiscent of King Saul with Agag the Amalekite. When Saul spared Agag, the prophet Samuel said to him, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he, that is the Lord, has also rejected you from being king. At the same time that the Lord had devoted Agag and all the Amalekites to destruction, he had also devoted all the animals to destruction. And a little bit later in the passage, Samuel says, oh, you've obeyed the voice of the Lord? Well, what is this bleeding of sheep I hear? Samuel hears uh, Saul come back with a pitiful excuse. Oh, the soldiers kept the best of the animals to sacrifice to the Lord, your God. I think it's interesting there. It's your God, not our God, not my God, your God. You remember what Samuel says in response? Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. Now, surely Ahab knew the story, but he learned nothing from it. Now, history matters, and Ahab had ignored its lessons that God intended for our good. What about us? As the Apostle Paul tells the Corinthians, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. The author of history has given us an inspired history to teach us how we might glorify him and enjoy him forever. But us therefore both listen and obey. Now to my surprise, a fairly large number of commentators really wrestle with, they have difficulty with, the fact that God is pronouncing this judgment on Ahab and the Israelites. And um, honestly, I just don't get it. It doesn't surprise me at all that Almighty God would enforce the poetic justice of saying, your life for Ben-Hadad's and wicked Israel's life for the wicked Syrians. What surprises and amazes me is not that substitution, but that God would send his perfect son, Jesus Christ, for sinners like you and for me, not our lives for his, but his life for ours. So what should we learn from this bit of inspired history? Why were these things written down for our instruction? Well, there are a lot of things for us to learn about seeking the Lord's will about not making rash decisions, about trusting and obeying the word of God, and about identifying with the people of God. But the most important thing we can learn from King Ahab is how desperately we need King Jesus. As the current election cycle reminds us of the utter folly of putting our confidence in merely human princes, let us rejoice with grateful hearts that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, and that Almighty God has given Jesus as head over his church. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts shall accomplish this. Praise be to God. Amen.